I want to give a, a shout out to Riley Wesson for doing a cameo up here this morning for us. Great job. So um, this morning, I have to say I'm a little bit nervous because um, we have a ton of ground to cover in today's passage. And um, I normally go along anyway, and uh, that's not a good combination. It's having a lot of ground to cover and, and, and me teaching. So I'm trying to I want to get through this as quick as I can and get you guys to your discussion. Uh, but today might be a little bit like trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant. So we're hopeful that it can uh, work out, though. Uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And we, are, we started a series in Romans about two weeks ago. And I told you guys that uh, one of my biggest hopes for this series is I'm praying for two things. Number one is praying for spiritual breakthroughs to happen all over this room. And that might be for someone who's been a Christian for a while. It might be for someone who is not a Christian yet. But I'm praying for spiritual breakthrough to happen in all of our lives as a result of this study in Romans. But the second thing I'm praying for is praying for unity. Because Paul's writing this book to hopefully bring Jew and Gentiles together in unity, um, unified around the gospel. And my hope is that whenever we preach the gospel to you, that it would bring unity in this group. And I'm not, I've said this Two weeks. I'm not sure how unified we are. I mean, I can't um, police all those things, but I'm not sure how unified we are. And I'm praying that um, preaching this book will actually bring about some things that are um, that are miraculous and unifying to this group in a miraculous way. So we're praying for those two main things. Uh, we talked last week about what it means to be offended by the gospel. We said that um, the gospel is offensive. And that might sound like a weird thing to say because you might think, well, how's the gospel offensive? That's like the, the, the tamest, nicest thing someone could do is to give up their son for us on the cross and to have him die for us, for God to come down and do that. That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. How is that offensive to us? And here's how it's offensive to us. And it, because you have to come to God with a sense of humility about yourself and say, God, I can't do anything on my own. The fact that I needed God to die on my behalf because I am that imperfect, is an offensive thing for us. And we talked about that last week, how the gospel is offensive to us, and it should be offensive to us, because we are imperfect, we are sinful, we are unrighteous, and he is perfect and righteous, and this is what the gospel is. So um, today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1 again, the second half of, of chapter 1, and I want to recap this one verse we looked at last week, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. I'm just going to read it very quickly. This was the linchpin verse last week, a couple of verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So I mentioned last week that when you read Paul, it can sound strange because it's all these like long sentences. You have no idea what they mean. You just when you gloss over it, and so for Paul, sometimes it's easier to understand Paul if you turn it into a conversation, because when Paul writes, he is always anticipating the question and the responses of the audience. But you don't get to see that in the text. So here's I want to turn this into a conversation today. So let's kind of put it in, in conversation format. Paul says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." Verse sixteen. We might ask the question, "Okay, why not, Paul?" Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The power of God is what saves us, not our own power, not our own works. How so, Paul? 
Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. That is God's way of justifying sinners. Go to my next slide. But why is this necessary, Paul? We keep saying his name over and over again. Um, Because the wrath of God, this gets into today's passage. Verse 18 is where today's passage begins. I want you to see a bridge between verses 16 and 17 and verse 18. Here's how they tie in. But why is this necessary, Paul? So why is this power from God and this righteousness, why is that necessary for our lives? Because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But how have people suppressed the truth? Because what may be known about God is plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. You can see the logic as we walk through the passage, what Paul is trying to communicate as he writes to the Romans. So the really big question that today's passage answers is this question. Why do we need this gospel? And I know this might be a refresher for some of you, but I want it to be something that causes you to see grace and to see God's holiness and his wrath and his righteousness in a new kind of way this morning when you leave here. So why do we need this gospel that's being talked about in Romans? In other words, Paul's asking the question, why do we need this righteousness from God to be in right standing with God? Why do we need it? And Paul spends all of verse 18 in chapter 1, all the way through Romans 3, verse 20, he, he spends those several chapters telling us why it is that you and I need to have this righteousness from God applied to us in our lives. So if you look with me, we're going to pick up in, uh, in Romans chapter 1, looking at verse 18. We're going to read this again. And we see in this passage where God's wrath is revealed. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we'll pick up there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, if if you and I were to go on the street and interview people, and say, ask people, whether Christians or not Christians, if we said, ask the, if you ask one question, say, God is fill in the blank. What's the number one response you think you would get? What is that? I heard someone say it. God is fill in the blank. What would they say, do you think? God is love, right? Most would probably say, yeah, God is love. God's a God of love, and he is a God of love. How many think you would get the response, God is anger, and he is wrathful? Like that'd be the, that probably would not be the number one response you would get if you did a street survey. So this idea of God's wrath is not a popular idea. And I think even in the church, we tend to pit God's anger against God's love like they're opposites. They're not opposites. I would tell you that the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is just, I don't care. So, so when someone... When we think of anger, most of us think of the way in which humans get angry, which we can have a lot of poison ingredients to how we get angry, right? Like when I think about my own kids, my kids make me angry a lot. Just ask my wife. And most of the time, it's for selfish reasons. They're inhibiting what I want to do. They're inhibiting my selfish agenda, so I get angry at them unjustly. 
sometimes it's justified. But sometimes it's not justified. And so as people, our anger and our wrath can often be self-centered, self-motivated, um, self-agenda focused. But with God, this is not where his anger resides. His, his anger does not have those kinds of ingredients to it. God gets angry about the right things in the right way and in the right time. The Bible says that God is slow to anger. He doesn't just pop off like we do. He is slow to anger. And when he does get angry, it's, it's for the right reasons and for the right cause. This is why he gets angry. And people also ask questions like, if, if God's real, then where is he? Why, doesn't he? why didn't he show himself, reveal himself? And this passage is the classic passage on something called God's general revelation. This passage is all about um, God reveals certain aspects of himself that everyone can see. This is God's general revelation that even the believer, the unbeliever, can see certain things about our world. They can deduce certain things about who God is, this God that we worship, um, just by looking around and seeing what, um, how the world operates, how the world works. So the question, what can we see? What can we see about God as we look around at this general revelation? It says here, his eternal power and his divine nature. We can see these two things, his eternal power his divine nature as we look at the way the world works. We also can answer the question, when has this been seen? It's been seen since the creation of the world. This passage tells us that every person bears this responsibility for their sin and is accountable to this God based on this general revelation. Now, general revelation is not the same thing as special or specific revelation. That comes in Jesus and also comes in his word. But this is general revelation. And God says that everyone is to be held accountable just by the sheer understanding of general revelation. So where, has, where have these things been seen? Where, where can we look in our world and say we can see these aspects about who God is? We can look into what he has made. Just in the same way that the if you go to an art museum and you see a painting, and that painting always says something about the painter, we look around our world and everything that we see says something about who the creator is. Now, we don't go in the direction of pantheism, which says God is in everything. We don't go that direction. We see the creator and we see the creation as separate, but the creation is still a still reflects certain aspects of who God is. And Genesis 1.31 calls the creation good because we serve a good God. So it reflects something about who he is, but it, it is not the things that we see in this world, that's not God himself or itself, as some of the pantheists would say. So just look at how things work. Like, look at the way our world works. We see we see morality, we see truth, we see justice interwoven, the desire for these things interwoven into our existence and our world. And this is what is being talked about here, that this is, this is evidence for um, this general revelation. No one can claim, this says that no one is without excuse. No one can make an excuse and say, God hasn't given me enough yet to, um, to, to start walking down the pathway of following Jesus and responding to this general revelation. So the big idea from this passage that I want you to see today is apart from the gospel, you and I are all under God's wrath. 
Every single one of us, apart from Jesus and the gospel, is under the wrath of God. And this is the part I want to really press on this morning because I think that if we really press you into a corner on this idea, I'm not sure that many of us would admit that this is where we are. I I think that we would squirm and be like, yeah, I I know I'm supposed to say that. I know I'm supposed to say, yeah, I'm under the wrath of God without Jesus Christ. But when we push you in a corner, you're going to be like, hey, look, I'm a pretty good church kid. I've done some good things. And you might think to yourself, well, I, I'm, I know I sinned, but I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as him or her. Like, I, I know some bad examples at school of some big-time sinners, and I'm not that bad. Now, you may not say it out loud. You know you're not supposed to say it out loud, right? You, you, but in your heart, in my heart, we have these inner monologues that go something like that don't we? So apart from the gospel, we're all under God's wrath. And when you and I live this way, here's where this leads. Verse 18, he says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I want to focus on this phrase, suppress the truth, because I think we see in that phrase, who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. I want you to follow the logic of what he's saying here. I think you see a cycle of sin in what he's saying. Because most of us, if we're honest, we think of sin like this. Go to my next slide. We think of sin, um, we suppress the truth. Like we hear the truth and we suppress the truth. And then as a result of that suppressed truth, we fall into sin. It's how we see that it normally goes, right, in our lives. But sometimes it can work in reverse. Here's what I mean when I say that. Sometimes you and I can just fall into sin. We just fall into sin and sometimes by the, by the fact that we fell into sin and are living in some kind of sinful lifestyle, that sin is what is suppressing the truth in our lives. I'll give you an example. So you fall into a relationship that you know is an ungodly relationship. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're a follower of Christ. And the person you're with you know is not a follower of Christ or at least are not really trying to follow him in the way that you think they should try to follow him. And they're kind of leading you astray, away from Christ in that relationship. And suddenly, you are in this sinful relationship. And what begins to happen in that relationship is the truth begins to get suppressed because you're in the relationship. And this relationship becomes your new truth that you live by. So everything in your life revolves around this new truth that you're living out in the context of this sinful relationship. And because of that, you begin to suppress the truth because you're, it's like the sin is eclipsing out the truth and the light of Jesus. And so at times, it can work in the opposite, where you and I fall into sin, and the sin itself is what suppresses the truth. And we go into this cycle where it's suppressed truth and sin, suppressed truth and sin, and on and on we go. If you ever had a friend, or maybe yourself, you've been in this position, where it seems like no matter what you say to them about Christ and the gospel, they just will not budge. They are stuck in their sin. They're stuck, and they can't get out, and they will not get out. And this is an example we're talking about. This is suppressed truth. They, they live their life by this newfound truth that they have in their lives. I want you guys to go ahead and do your first uh, four uh, questions at your tables. 
Now, I know a lot of you guys aren't done yet talking, but if you need to have more time at the end, you guys can come back to some of those other questions at the end of this morning. But I want you to look with me at verse 21. We'll pick up in verse 21. This talks about why God's wrath is revealed, like why why God's wrath is revealed to us. Look at verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Creepy. So because of God's general revelation that we see in this passage, it says it's possible to know about God but not honor him as God. And I think we see this all throughout um, our world today. And even in the church, we see many people that know a lot about God, but don't actually honor him as God or obey him as God. And I think I told this story uh, several years ago. I'm not sure if you've heard this before or not. If you have, I, um, I apologize. I'll tell it again. I think it's a relevant story for us. Um, but several years ago, my wife and I were at this restaurant in Dallas, and we um, run into Troy Aikman. And so that's him over my left shoulder. And we come into this little restaurant, and my my wife, we sit down, my wife goes, Dave, right behind you is Troy Aikman. I'm like, no, he's not. What are you talking about? Oh, my gosh, there's Troy Aikman. Right? I could, like, touch his shoulder if I wanted to right there and probably hurt his shoulder because um, I'm a Redskins fan. Uh, I would never do such a thing. Uh, but but what, it was crazy. And so, we're sitting, so at that point, the whole dinner becomes about Troy Aikman. I'm like, this is not the way this date was supposed to go. And uh, so we are having dinner. And um, then we did the whole scene of like, hey, why don't you take a picture of me, Courtney? Here's my phone. <laughs> right? So, um, so there's Troy Aikman over my left shoulder. And the funny thing about it was like I could hear his whole conversation. It was like I was like a part of his life for five minutes. It was crazy. And, uh, but here's the crazy thing about the story. I have another picture after this one as well. It might be a little bit more blurry, I think. But um, that's him telling a story, I think. So... He's getting real emphatic with his hands, you know, and uh, and just to make sure, I mean, he's like um, the old Cowboys quarterback from many, many years ago now. So you guys know who Troy Aikman is, right? Just to make sure he's the one your parents always compare Romo to. So you should know who he is. Um, yeah. So that's who that is in case you know, hadn't played in 15 years. But this is Tony. This is Troy Aikman. And uh, and but if I were to leave that setting. I, I texted my friends like the photo and I'm like, hey, look, here's Troy Aikman. And if I left that setting and told my friends, yeah, yeah, I know Troy Aikman. We're boys. We hang out. Me and Troy Aikman, like we're, we're like this. My friends would look at me and laugh. They'd be like, no, you don't know Troy Aikman. Like, yeah, but look at this picture right here. You see that? And I can tell you a lot about Troy Aikman. I can tell you that he was the first pick in the draft when he was drafted back whenever that was. I can tell you he went to Oklahoma for his first part of his career, and then he went to um, UCLA, and then he went to the Cowboys. I can tell you a lot about his career. So I know a lot about Troy Aikman, but I don't know Troy Aikman. I, I don't have a relationship with Troy Aikman. I don't know him in that way. And I think for, for many of us, we have this idea with God that we can know a lot about God, and that means we know him. That means we're in a relationship with him. And, and just because you know a lot about God does not mean that you honor him as God. So, so, so people can know about God but not honor him as God. People can know a lot about Jesus. They can know the facts 
of the resurrection. They can know the facts of the incarnation. They can know the facts about Jesus and the Gospels, but it does not mean that they know him. And I think that many of us um, can be guilty of this. Um, we see it in our culture. We see it, I think, even in the church as well. And we see it all around us. And I want you to go back to the passage now on the screen because what's being described in this passage, go back to my previous slide with the passage there. What's being described in this passage is idolatry. It's exchanging the creator for something that's created. This is how we define idolatry. And so in that day, idolatry was more literal. It talks about them worshiping statues of animals and and creeping things. And they're literally worshiping and bowing down to some idols in their culture. And I know for us, we tend to think, well, you know, that's, that's crazy idolatry. Like, we don't do that today, so we're, we're not as crazy as they were back then. But let me ask you this question. Their idolatry, you're right, was more obvious. Ours is more subtle. But which is more dangerous? We, we worship sexuality. We worship power, fame, wealth, popularity. And it may not involve a literal physical statue. So their idolatry was more obvious, external. Ours is more subtle, but which is more dangerous? Because I would put forth to you that, that it's more dangerous when you're not really aware of your idolatry, when you don't really see it as idolatry. That's the more dangerous kind of idolatry. And so we still, today, we find ways to exchange the creator with the creation and put the creation on this pedestal and worship it and make it our new truth and make it our identity, we still do that in our world today. And this is why God's wrath is revealed against it. Look at verse 24. This is now how God reveals his wrath. Verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see a theme in this verse where it says they, they dishonored God, which led to a dishonoring of their bodies. Anytime someone is dishonoring their own body or dishonoring someone else's body, there was first a dishonoring of God and who God is. Dishonoring God always leads to a dishonoring of our own bodies or someone else's body. It always works in that, in that order. And when you and I commit idolatry, we exchange the creator with the creation. Um, God does something to us. This passage is clear. God, this is how God reveals his wrath. It says that he gives us over to it. He gives us over to our sin. Now, you might ask the question, well, how is that wrath? That sounds pretty awesome. I mean, God's giving you what you want. And you think about it as a parent. I mean, yeah, it sounds awesome because as a parent, if, I, if my son's doing something he's not supposed to be doing, and I say, son, because you are um, watching too much television, your punishment is going to be eight hours more of television. My son's going to be like, awesome. That's pretty sweet. So when it says God hands you over to your sin, like how is that God's wrath? Because that sounds, how is God giving you the very thing you want? How is that his wrath? I want to show you how that is his wrath. And I will tell you that it's the worst kind of wrath. It's his quiet wrath. It's letting someone 
reap the consequences of what they have sown and giving them over to it and saying, here, you want to live this way? Okay, you can live that way. That's your choice. And God hands us over to our sins sometimes. So the worst kind of wrath is God giving us exactly what you and I want. And it's the most terrifying kind of wrath. Because um, I think you have to understand something as we go through this passage. Because the main problem of our heart is not our desire for bad things. But over-desire for good things. So the word lust in this passage is, 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 is the definition of lust is actually an over-desire. Most of you think of lust being like, okay, lust is bad. And you don't, that's the only category you have for it. But what lust is, lust is an over-desire for something that's good. So God creates sex. He creates sexuality. Well, what lust is, is an over-desire for something God created. You're wanting it in ways in which he did not intend. And this is lust. And so God um, made everything good, but our hearts have gone wicked. Our hearts have gone crooked. And so now we desire these things and we lust after these things and desire these things in ways that God never intended. And so the worst thing that can happen to you and I is that God gives us exactly what we lust after. I'll give you an example of this. So what's the worst thing for someone? If someone idolizes their career and their job, what's the worst thing for that person? A promotion. Because they, they, they continue to live in the cycle of worshiping themselves and worshiping their job, worshiping their career. And so the worst thing that can happen for that person is to get promoted in the midst of that because now they just get more of that cycle of sin we talked about earlier. Tim Keller says this. He says, since we were created to be centered on God, then giving us what we want is his judgment because we end up finding no fulfillment in the things we have chosen. I think I may have told some of you this story a while back, but um, I've got this uncle who lives down in Houston, and he's a doctor down there in Houston. He um, works at MD Anderson Cancer Hospital. And my, my aunt, which is my mom's sister, um, lives there. And they've been together since I was a small child. And they dated for a while. They, they're both not believers. Um, he's an atheist. Like, she's kind of an agnostic, not really sure what she believes and they're both doctors, both very, very intelligent people. But they lived together for a long time. They finally got married. Um, but he has just been one of those rampant adulterers, just cheats and cheats and cheats, and, and pornography addiction, the whole deal. Um, just an example of someone's life. He's, he's a really, really smart guy, but just a train wreck of a life. And we've not really been that close, he and I, but recently he was diagnosed with a horrible brain tumor. And now he's in his early 60s, and now it looks like it could be just months. It's a bad diagnosis. I mean, he goes from one of those top doctors in a big hospital in a big city now just to no career for now. He's having seizures. He's on medication. He's just, things, things are just in a tailspin. My aunt and him recently have separated about three years ago, but they're still technically married. It's just a weird situation, guys. It's just a weird, awkward situation. So I told my wife, I said, we need to go see them. We need to go see them in, on their way to uh, Christmas vacation. We need to go see them in Houston and just kind of be in the middle of that awkwardness. And so we had lunch with my aunt and then with my uncle there and, um, and their son. And he's just, 
telling us kind of what he's been going through, and he has no faith to, to stand on as he walks through all this. Got a big old scar on his head. He's got slurred speech right now as he recovers from the surgery. And there's one statement he said I'll never forget as we're there in the, in the dining room having this conversation with him and my aunt, who's he, who he's estranged from right now. And he looks at her across the room and he says, haven't I become a better person as a result of this? And he looked at me and he goes, I think I've become a better person. This has made me a better person. And I was just speechless thinking, man, here's someone who's an atheist who at least acknowledges some truth that we're all in need. Now, he doesn't worship Jesus. He didn't go that far to worship Christ, but it was at least an acknowledgement that I need to get my life right. I need to, this needs to change. I've, I've been living horribly. I made a wreck out of her life and my son's life and my own life to an extent. But I think this has made me into a better person. And so even an atheist can see some of these things um, that we're talking about, that we need, we have this great need for, for someone or something to intervene into our life. My hope and prayer is that he, he turns to Christ as a result of what he's going through. But you see someone who, whose life is in shambles as he walks through chemotherapy and surgery. He doesn't even have a wife to sit by, with him by the bedside to bring him comfort because he's, the way he's treated her his whole, their whole marriage. I think he was dating someone recently as he walked through all this, and then she, she broke up with him. And it's just a man who's just who's dying, and it's depressing and tragic. Everything about it's depressing. And yet, I think his life sort of exemplifies this truth that when you choose to walk your own path, God will hand you over to your sin, and there's going to be some consequences that we reap just naturally. It's just sown into the world. It's just interweaved into what happens. And so God hands us over. He allows us to walk through the door we've chosen. It's the worst thing for us. It's the worst kind of wrath, in my opinion. And on the other hand, this sounds bad. This sounds depressing. But on the flip side of that, this is God's grace at work. Because God lets us reap the consequences of our sin in hopes that we will see our need for him. In hopes that we'll see a need to, as he says, become a better person in the person of Jesus Christ. Because you and I can't become a better person apart from Jesus Christ. So I want to switch gears for a moment here. Um, and I know we're pushed for time. Man, we're pushed for time. It's 12.09. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to run through this very quickly. <laughs> Bear with me. So um, in verse 26, uh, Paul switches gears, talks about homosexuality. I'm not going to get into that topic a lot today because I don't have time. And if you want to hear a talk on that, we did this last year. Go on our high school webpage, and you'll see a, um, a talk we did on this topic. Um, but I want you to miss this. Look at verse 26. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men 
and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I don't want you to miss this. The point in this passage is not just homosexuality. It's idolatry. He's trying to show you the link between when you and I walk down these pathways of sin, behind that is idolatry. Behind that is replacing the creator with the creation. And I don't want you to miss this. So as we move into the next section, look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's right, righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so in, in case you were looking at the homosexuality passage and feeling kind of self-righteous, like, yeah, those, look at the next part of the passage, right? That one gets all of us. And I don't want you to miss this. The point he's trying to make is that idolatry, this is where idolatry leads. It leads to this kind of sin and that kind of sin and this kind of sin and that kind of sin. This is where it leads. And I want to bring this back to what I said earlier, and that is my goal this morning is to let you see yourself in Romans chapter 1. Let you see yourself in this passage. Let you see yourself as deserving of the wrath of God. And I want to close with three responses that I think we have to think through as we look at this passage. The first response, and I think it's a right response to this passage, is that we have to allow these verses we looked at this morning to expose our own self-righteousness. Because if you, if you and I see all sin as flowing from idolatry, then when we hear about something like homosexuality, we won't get self-righteous because we realize that the same idolatry is within us. You won't see sin in degrees if you really understand today's passage today. The next response, which I think is a right response, is to allow the reality of God's wrath to drive us back to the place where we see God's mercy, and it's the cross. Like, this is how they work together. So it can't, we can't just be like, okay, all God's wrath, this was a fire and brimstone message. This was all about God being angry because we can't just look at God's anger in that um, just one-dimensional way, we have to see it as that wrath, that justified wrath God has towards sin drives us back to his mercy, which we find at the cross. And this is how they work together. And the last point, hopefully today's passage allows us to see the reality of our received righteousness and how it sets us free from idolatry. That's my prayer for you this morning. Um, Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your tables.